0: From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Just before we check in with Travel Best Bet founder and... uh creator uh, Claire Newell. There was a question on the open line just a few moments ago about foot passengers and booking that travel on BC ferries and the cost of that. You can book foot passenger travel in advance. BC ferries saying that will give you more travel certainty, a faster check-in process at the terminal and safer travel. It is not an additional cost. There is no additional cost to booking a foot passenger fare in advance. So it's not as though you have to book another reservation fee, but the fares are non-refundable. So you can't book one and then not go and expect to get a refund. But as to that caller's question, there is no additional cost. It is not more expensive to book a foot passenger fare on BC Ferries in advance. So on that note, let's now check in with Claire Newell, the founder Founder and President of Travel Best Bets. Claire, great to chat with you once again. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. Lots going on in the world of travel. And some great news if you are somebody who is running out of options with entertainment if you're flying on Air Canada.
1: Yeah, this was just announced yesterday. Um, they've expanded their in-flight entertainment with the addition of Apple TV+. Plus. So if you're a big fan of Ted Lasso or Bad, Bad Sisters, or many more shows um, that is now uh, available on board as part of their programming. What's really interesting about Air Canada is just how much they've um, expanded it. They now offer 2,500 hours of movies, TVs, podcasts, and music, as well as um, live TV news, including uh, global and (laughs) um, sports. Um, They've nearly doubled the amount of in-flight entertainment Since last year, which is really great because I know there's a lot of road warriors out there who travel for business and they feel like they've seen everything, especially all the movies on board. So this is good news.
0: That is good news to try and make that time go a little bit faster. So that's Air Canada. Also an update on WestJet and some of their flights. Yeah,
1: this is great, especially if you live in the Fraser Valley. A lot of people love that Abbotsford Airport. It's cheaper to park. It's pretty central And uh, WestJet has announced, I I mentioned um, last week that they had increased their winter network, but um, they announced just this week that they'll be adding Abbotsford to a couple of popular beaches in Mexico. So Abbotsford, Puerto Vallarta will begin twice a week starting on December the 5th. And Abbotsford to Los Cabos, Mexico, once a week starting December 4th. The other thing is is that in addition to some sun destinations they're also going to be providing some nonstop connectivity between Abbotsford and Alberta because that's really their hub and especially for their 787 international flights so there'll be some kind of seamless connections available um, within Canada, but also the U.S., Central America, Europe. And they fly to Tokyo now, so it makes it easier. So they'll do daily year-round flights between Abbotsford and Calgary, which is their main hub, but also Abbotsford, Edmonton, five times a week because they do have a lot of service from Edmonton as well. Um, so that's good. I wanted to just give, um, during this segment, I wanted to give one little um, just kind of update on what's happening here in Canada. I know there's been a lot of finger-pointing about NAVCAN, and you and I chatted about that recently. But, um, you know, it's airports and it's airlines just in general. Uh, I'm going to just tell a story about my son. He was on a flight going to Toronto, and it was an oversold situation. So there's a couple of lessons in here. The oversold situation, he has learned from his mama. <laughs> he put up his hand. He was carry-on only, and he put up his hand to take the, the, um, the next flight out. So he had to wait, like I think, not even two hours, and he was the only one who was putting up his hand. So he negotiated $1,000, pretty wow. good, for a nice. couple of hours. <laughs> um, but the other thing was is that at the other end, when he arrived in Toronto, they did – um, gate check his bag which meant it went into the belly of the aircraft he had to go to the luggage carousel to actually get it even though he had packed carry-on only he was going to be one of the last people on that next flight and not only that the gate wasn't ready when he arrived 35 minute wait for the gate an hour for Great. his bag so carry-on only does does not guarantee <laughs> it's going to go on board with you and the luggage and the gate is it's a bit of a wait at the moment unfortunately it's staffing shortages right across the board so not just NAVCAN it's airports and airlines everybody
0: <laughs> all right well it, it, great though he did learn to, to negotiate and uh, take that uh, <laughs> opportunity if it knocks I'm not a surprise yeah. that that things like that are happening to your son and to others as well as looking up the numbers and busy busy canadian airports
1: yeah, busy Canadian airports, but still nowhere near where we were uh, in 2019. So StatsCan just came out with their year um, in a summary for 2022. And the four largest airports, Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal. So you're right. He was traveling between two of the busiest, Vancouver and Toronto. Makes up more than 70% of all air passenger traffic in Canada. But just to give you an idea, um, we're still only at 72%. Of the 162.9, so almost 163 million were recorded in 2019 for travel. In 2022, just last year, only at 117.3. So we still have a long way to go to get back to our pre pandemic level. So if this is any indication (laughs) where we're at, it's busy. I mean, it was, um, you know, we, we still have a long way to go as far as hiring, that's for sure.
0: This is a fun story as well. If anybody's ever wanted to go to Japan and if you like skiing, there is a new Club Med resort.
1: Yeah, so Club Med is a Canadian brand, and they're, gonna, uh, they're going to launch a new Japan ski resort uh, in Hokkaido, and it's going to open this December. They get 160 days of winter, so the resort's going to offer spring skiing until May, as well as night skiing, off piste skiing with new trails, and that new property will join the brand's 20 other mountain resorts located through the Alps, Canada, and Asia. So if you only thought that Club Med was for the sun destination, they are big into skiing now.
0: That's, uh, I know it's a destination for many, many people, so that one's uh, really fun. This, I had, I had no idea, but this is such an interesting story as well. United Airlines, first carrier, adding Braille. Isn't that crazy? You would think that it would be simple to add Braille, yeah. but
1: yes, they are um, adding Braille. They are the, um, the first carrier. They've equipped about a dozen aircraft at the moment. The markings are for individual rows and seat numbers, as well as inside and outside of the bathrooms. And they are expecting to outfit their entire mainland fleet with Braille by the end of 2026. And it's it should have been, because the Department of Transportation showed that around 27 million people with disabilities traveled via commercial airlines back in 2019, and a lot of them are blind. So it's this is an important thing. It should have been done much earlier, and I was actually surprised that they're the first carrier to do this.
0: And, and speaking of being inclusive and making sure people can fly and access airlines, lavatories and uh, a rule about just how big lavatories have to be on certain planes.
1: Yep. And this is, this is great news as well. The finally the U S department of transportation has released a final rule. This has been going back and forward for a while, but the size of bathrooms on uh, narrowbody aircraft and any with just one single aisle, cause you know, it can be really skinny, mm-hmm. um, hard to walk down. So they will now have to have, uh, at least one bathroom that's large enough to have a passenger with a disability plus an attendant, and they will have to be to be able to approach it, enter it, and maneuver it. The only thing is, it's for new planes, so um, the requirement would apply only to aircraft delivered twelve years after the effective date of the rule. So, twenty thirty-five oh. should be, but <laughs> as well as so new aircraft, um, but not planes already in service unless they're putting. Um,
0: new bathrooms
1: onto those but at least it's coming at least it's coming they've taken big steps
0: well just before the break, we were talking with Claire Newell about some travel news specifically about being inclusive with the airlines. One airline finally introducing braille and rules coming in when it comes to the size of lavatories on planes. Those won't be in for a few years, but as Claire mentioned, at least it is being discussed. Well, this is another story, and it has to do with airplane food. If you like KFC, this would have been a great flight, so Claire, what exactly happened here? It- isn't this interesting? I read this, I'm like, what? KFC? Um, yeah,
1: there was a, a British Airways flight that was um, flying from Turks and Caicos, had to stop in the Bahamas, and they they realized that the food had not been packed in Turks and Caicos properly and chilled, so it all had to be thrown out. So rather than force the passengers to wait, uh, and it, they would probably have to wait a day, uh, maybe an overnight, to be able to get the food all organized. They just ordered KFC <laughs> during their stop in the Bahamas, so... <laughs> um they ordered a whole bunch of buckets of chicken it worked out to about one piece per person in in both business class and economy but i think that that was actually smart i would way rather have had kfc than had to wait a day or you know hours to be able to get the proper food
0: on board. Oh, yeah. Imagine being that person saying you'd rather wait a day to get airline food, <laughs> even if you don't like KFC. Right? Just bring it on, sure, or I'll <laughs> go without. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll eat the
1: granola bar in my purse.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, that's a, that's a fun one. Something uh, Canadian or Canada jet lines. We've been talking a bit about this airline. They are getting a third aircraft.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the newer low-cost carriers, and it'll be their third A320 aircraft. This airline is interesting. They found a lot of success in signing contracts with some Canadian football teams, the Toronto Argonauts, the Ottawa Red Blacks, and the Hamilton Tiger Cats. They also operate um, some sun destinations out of Pearson, so they go to Vegas as well as Cancun from Toronto. And they've just signed another charter with a Caribbean airline and they'll be flying from Toronto to Georgetown, Guyana. So um, they do have some flights, but they're, they're using those aircraft for charter flights in you know, as many occasions as they possibly can to guarantee that, that it will be a working aircraft. But we'll see more of this airline as well, and, some, and likely some low fares.
0: Interesting. Um, we're talking, so that's uh, good news for Canada Jetlines. We also have an update on new routes. If anybody's going to Montreal... Yeah, so this is um, an interesting
2: low-cost
1: carrier that's out of Dominican, and it's called Aerojet And the reason I thought I would do, um, mention this one is because often getting to places in North, Central, and South America, as well as the Caribbean, there's not a lot of choice. So um, this is a new a newer low-cost carrier. They're not new. I mean, they have 20 destinations in 14 countries, and they fly 737 MAX 8s. So it's nice aircraft, they're they're newer aircraft, but they'll be flying from um, Montreal to Santo Domingo starting November the 7th, four times a week, and then they'll have great connectivity to North, Central, South America, and the Caribbean. They also have announced, they they previously announced that they'll be flying Toronto to Santo Domingo starting October the 24th, so they're trying to forge a way into Canada to service um, Santo Domingo and then continuing on to other destinations.
0: Interesting. Uh, let's talk about one more before we get people uh, some deals. Uh, so uh, while well, we can kind of uh, talk about these two, it has to do with uh, reducing flights, uh, which isn't great news for people mm-hmm. who like that kind of choice. But a couple of airlines, especially those, it looks like midweek flights, uh, the numbers are down.
1: Yeah, so what it's it's not going to mean less flights is going to mean that the these airlines are going to be putting their resources closer to the weekend. So they're going to reduce the Tuesday and Wednesday flights and this is right in response to the changing habits of US flyers. So many people are doing that hybrid work and so they're extending their weekends and not flying as much for business. So this was this has been interesting. I first heard that it was two of the three US ultra low cost carriers Frontier was doing this, as well as Allegiant. And a lot of people will cross the line and go to Bellingham and fly on Allegiant. And then um, just a couple of days later, Southwest Airlines also plans to substantially reduce midweek flying. And that's going to start beginning in January. All of this because of the the changing patterns. All because of of the pandemic. And so it's interesting to watch. There'll still be as many flights, just not on those Tuesdays and Wednesdays. it's the habits of travelers right now.
0: Hmm. All right, so a bit of a change there. Speaking of the habits of travelers, what deals do you have today?
1: Well, I have what I would consider a last minute because we don't really get last minutes um, anymore, but to the Riviera Maya in September, two dates only, September the 9th or 16th, air in seven nights in a four-and-a-half-star all-inclusive resort, Six ninety nine. Hmm. The tax is almost the same at 6 10 um, I had to share this next one because I have not seen a bucket list cruise to Antarctica for this price. So this is Antarctica and South America. It's sailing around Buenos Aires. It's a 14-night cruise, February the 4th or 18th. It hits all the places that if you were been following along that I got to see when I was doing Antarctica myself. It had been on my bucket list for a really, really long time. But I certainly did not pay $13.99 for the 14-night cruise I went on. <laughs> the taxes are five fifty five. So if that has been something you've wanted to do, it's, at l- it's like a third of the price that I've seen it previously. So it's a really, really good buy, February 4th or 18th of 2024.
0: Interesting. All right. And you've got one more as well. This one's a long stay.
1: Yeah, lots of people love this destination for a long stay. It just came out, um, April the second, third or fourth. Uh it's to Croatia, uh, into Dubrovnik It's twenty nights, so almost three weeks in a four star hotel. It comes with breakfast every day and the airport transfers twenty two sixty nine tax included for almost three weeks in Croatia.
0: Hmm, excellent. Uh, Sounds absolutely great. All of those I know are on the website. Claire, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again next week. Chat soon. Thanks, Jill. Just a couple of days, well, a few days ago, it was in the evening, around 20 after 10, and members of the Delta Police Department were called with a report of a missing person. This individual had apparently walked away from the Delta hospital after being admitted there for some medical issues, including some potential dementia-like symptoms. So officers started and responded to a potential sighting of the missing individual, but they weren't able to find the person right away. So that's when technology started to play a role. And Sergeant Jim Ingram is joining us now a Delta Police. Sergeant, thank you so much for taking some time today.
3: Well, oh, thanks for having me, Joe.: uh,
0: So this was technology that was brought in or used to try or to help and find this individual. And uh, it was a drone that was helping with the search. Tell us a little bit about, if you can, what this drone looks like and how it works.
3: Sure. So the, the drone that we used is a, a DJI M300. It's, um, it's a regular-style quadcopter drone. Um, Size-wise, it's about 3 feet by 2 feet, so it's larger than your, your average drone that you're going to pick up at Best Buy uh, and weighs about 15 pounds or 7 kilos. And then on it, we've got, uh, we've got multiple cameras and sensors as well as a spotlight. So the drone that was deployed that night had a um, uh, optical camera with a great zoom lens, and it also had a, a thermal imaging camera, like a flare camera as well, with the spotlight.
0: So I would imagine that was key in using this drone in, in that even though it's the summer months and later days, ten, twenty at night, it would be getting dark or darker. So was that kind of key in using this technology and that it would be able to use that equipment?
3: Absolutely. It, it was definitely dark once we had the drone deployed. So the, uh, the actual key... To finding the individual was the the thermal signature. We were able to see the the hotspot in an overgrown field.
0: And when you look at the area where this individual was last seen or a potential sighting, uh, people that know the area um, would know it's it's around an area of Dugald Morris, Morrison Park in in Delta. Does the is the drone able then to kind of survey a much larger area than say ground crews would be able to, even when you you know the general idea of where you're searching?
3: Absolutely. So. When, when we got the original sighting, it was in Dugald Morrison Park, which is a, you know an open field and fairly quick and easy to, to see. But then directly adjacent to that is uh, some farm fields and some overgrown um, bush area. So to put a person or a team of people in there and, and walk it would take a, a considerable amount of time, especially if somebody is, uh, is under the brush or um, hiding or has fallen. So when we can put the drone up, we can place the drone over an area and then survey an entire field in a matter of minutes for an initial sweep of, of hot spots. And then we can do a, a more in depth search with the spotlight and optical camera.
0: And when you talk about that, that it, it was able to use the infrared camera or be able to, to pick up on a hot spot, and in this case was able to, to really pinpoint where the missing individual was. Does it also pick up other things, though, say if there's wildlife or other things that might be giving off heat?
3: Uh, definitely. So. We'll, we'll, see, uh, we'll see wildlife for sure. Uh, it'll just be a, a smaller signature than it would typically a human being.
0: So not enough that it, it would send you kind of in the wrong direction or it would be more confusing? Uh,
3: typically not. But if, if we found a, a deer or something like we, we have, uh, it would be something we'd have to explore.
0: Right, okay. Uh, with a case like this, when somebody has uh, got, walked away from a hospital or a health facility and the call comes in that this is somebody that does also have potential dementia-like symptoms, how important is it that that person is found as quickly as possible?
3: Oh, immensely important. One, for their, their health. Um, we don't necessarily know what their, their medical condition is like, but if there's any sort of medical crisis, we want to find them as soon as we can. We also want to find them uh, with as small a search radius as possible, so being able to get the drone out right away and decrease that that search radius is important. And then the other thing to consider is not just that person's well-being, but the the family and the loved ones and and everybody wondering and waiting uh, and worrying. So being able to address that as soon as possible is key.
0: And in this case, uh, was the person located and did everything turn out okay?
3: Yep, the the drone was up for about twenty five minutes before we found the person. Uh, They were located and uh, and continued to get the medical assistance that they needed.
0: Has the drone been used before?
3: Yep, we we've used the drones. uh, We've had the drone program for about two years now, and we use it for things like this. I think this one was the very first, uh, very obvious uh, medical save.
0: All right. And and are there any privacy issues in that if a drone goes up? And like you said, it's, it's bigger than you would see somebody using. I think people have probably seen uh, people using them that are drone enthusiasts that are using those smaller ones that you can purchase, but three feet by two feet. So it is, like you said, much bigger than the drones you might see your neighbors or your friends using. Uh, have, have you come across or are there any privacy concerns that the drone might be picking up things that it's not out there to pick up?
3: Uh, there's definitely some concerns from the from the community and the public, and we we've addressed a lot of that in policy. We we don't fly the drones uh, randomly. We're not out there looking for any sort of random thing. When we deploy a drone, there has to be a, a specific mission that meets the requirements of the drone. And then we we're aware of the fact that we are uh, looking, especially from a different angle, um, at properties potentially at at people's properties. So we're only capturing media so photos and video that would have evidentiary value uh, and like I said it, it's only for a specific purpose. If we were to use it for a criminal investigation there's, there's likely a requirement that we would have a warrant that would support the use of the drone uh, so we, we've come across that before but uh, we're definitely very aware and, and sensitive to the fact that there are some privacy concerns.
0: Right. Because I would imagine, too, even if somebody's home or or yard or property happened to be close to an area where the drone was searching, exactly that, you kind of wonder why there's a police drone hovering above your property. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned criminal cases as well. I was curious about that because I would think, too, if you were in a scenario maybe where somebody was in medical distress or it was a mental health call, uh, is it used in that kind of scenario in that it might be less intrusive than, say, officers knocking on a door or showing up in person? Or or do you have to kind of assess whether or not the drone might further agitate somebody or or be an asset?
3: It, it's definitely a case-by-case case basis. and. We'll, we'll deploy the drone, but we'll also always have members on scene so there will be uniforms and police cars in the area to, to support the fact that there's something going on overhead.
0: And as far as you know, you, you mentioned this program has been part of the Delta Police Department for a couple of years. Are other departments using this, or is this becoming a more widely used technology?
3: There, there's definitely uh, many departments that have drones now. Uh, I'd say, though, we're probably one of the first or or one of the few that uses them in a patrol capacity where it's uh, used by our first responders immediately and as quickly as we can. Um, right now, most drones are used for things like crime scene documentation, uh, traffic, accident reconstruction, that kind of thing after the fact. The uh, the use of the drone in the patrol setting is, uh, is fairly unique for us right now.
0: Do officers that use it have to take any kind of special training?
3: Absolutely. All of our officers that that deploy it have uh, Transport Canada Advanced Drone Pilot Licenses. They've gone through ground school, they've gone through flight school, uh, and then they maintain a certain number of hours every two months to maintain their uh, operational status as a pilot.
0: And uh, so very very interesting and in this case uh, again talking about a, a missing person is is that where it, it really shines as far as uh, a tool that helps officers or is it like you said case by case it also being used when when appropriate for criminal cases or you used in those other areas as well
3: uh, It's it's case by case and we're we're always looking to to see where appropriate uses for the new technology is but the, the search and rescue, that missing person search is by far probably the, the bread and butter of this, the system. So like I said, as, as we can get the drone out and deployed immediately and reduce that search radius, we'll find far more success in that immediate deployment.
0: Interesting use of the technology for sure. Sergeant Ingram, thank you so much for joining us for talking more about this.
3: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Well, it is a bit bizarre that we are even having this conversation, but there is a new TikTok trend, and this trend has people drinking borax, which is toxic. In case you're wondering, yes, that borax, talking about borax or boric acid, these are materials commonly used in household products, things like laundry cleaning products. But it goes beyond that, they've also been used as fertilizers, in some cases, contact lens solution and in some homes, ant killers. People will use borax to kill ants. So you might wonder why it is this has become a trend. This is day one of me ingesting borax. I hopped on the borax train. I jumped on the borax train. Just a small example of people doing this. Joining us to talk more about the dangers, the concerns, and why these types of trends even take off is Maureen McGrath, nurse practitioner as well as host right here on CKNW. Maureen, great to talk to you once again. Thank you so much for having me. I have not jumped on the borax train. <laughs> I, I didn't think you had and I'm I'm very pleased to hear that. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about but the couple of things that, that go with this. Let's first start with borax, what
2: borax is, what it's used for and why you should not be ingesting it. Well, well, first and foremost, I must emphasize that drinking borax or any other toxic substances is extremely dangerous dangerous, and potentially lethal. It's a toxic substance when ingested. Even small amounts can lead to severe health problems, Jill, like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and in larger amounts can lead to damage to vital organs like your kidneys or your liver. It can cause allergic reactions in some people, especially skin Um, like dermatitis, for example, and especially those who have hypersensitivity to borax. So um, it's very dangerous and there's no medical benefit. And it even says on the box, doesn't
0: it, that don't uh, get in your eyes, don't consume, keep this away from children. So it seems like it's pretty clear, the warning on the box, that while there are several uses for borax, any
2: kind of health care is not one of them. That's exactly right. And it can cause eye, skin, irritation, upper respiratory tract irritation. So that can lead to coughing, difficulty breathing, nosebleeds. And and so it can cause a lot of problems when it is not, when you don't follow the directions on the box.
0: So it sounds like maybe this is a hoax. Maybe somebody started this and thought, oh, I wonder if this can take off. And clearly there are some people who are doing this. I saw one of a woman saying she just puts a pinch of borax powder in water and and drinks it every day and claims that it treats her inflammation. It can treat everything from arthritis to other conditions.
2: But how dangerous is it that people are putting that message out there? It is so dangerous, and there can actually be some legal and ethical concerns because when you encourage or even participate in dangerous trends like this, it can lead to legal consequences, especially if it results in harm to yourself or to other people. And and actually, um, people may not be aware of this, but promoting harmful behaviors goes against ethical guidelines for responsible social media usage.
0: Why do you think people get taken in by this and somebody that maybe would never in a million years have thought of consuming something, a toxic substance like this, sees it online, sees that it's
2: trending and then tries it? Well, first and foremost, uh, social media... Um, and especially TikTok, trends often become viral and they spread rapidly. So it gets out to the masses and then they start to gain popularity. And because TikTok is a social media platform where users can easily see what others are doing and feel compelled to join, to be part of a trend or a community, they have what we know as FOMO, fear of missing out. And that can drive people to participate in these popular challenges, even though they might be dangerous and they're not actually considering their potential consequences. We still have peer pressure on social media from friends and influencers. And also, you know, that actually can result in more likes and, you know, people want to be popular. But ultimately, TikTok trends are designed to be entertaining and fun. And so they, you know, it's for pure fun. That's, that's it. Pure enjoyment. Maybe they're totally bored. I'm not really sure, but it also gives people a sense of belonging, which is kind of a sad aspect of, of social media. And you know, TikTok has a significant user base of young people who may be more likely to engage in trends as a form of expression and rebellion against uh, the norms of society and the mores and authority as well.
0: Uh, do you think that it's also kind of a holdover or this started or maybe didn't start, but, but became more of an issue during the pandemic when there were people who were very much opposed to the vaccine, there were conspiracy theories, uh, there were so many people that jumped on the ivermectin uh, train that were very op- saying that they wanted to try this uh, this medicine that was for horses, not for humans. Has that kind of led to, for a certain group or a certain demographic, a distrust of of Traditional medicine, so they might be more
2: more open to to trying something like this, even though it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely, and that message has spread widely as well. The distrust of healthcare professionals, um, the pandemic, unfortunately, was politicized, and you know we had politicians delivering messages. Um, and maybe inaccurate messages or the science was changing and and people lost trust in the healthcare system. And uh, at at the beginning, healthcare providers, the nurses, if you recall, were revered. And toward the end of the pandemic, nurses were blamed for a lot of the issues associated with COVID, yet they were really the workhorse of the pandemic. And, but I, I do think for sure, this was born out of that. I think a lot of people went home, went on social media, got involved. You know. Wanted to be a part of something. And you know, people love to be you know, anti-whatever anti and rebellious. And, and so I think that has maybe set the foundation for dangerous trends such as the Borax Challenge
0: which uh, hopefully people will read the label on the box and uh, realize that it's not a good idea. Something I learned even looking into this was I I didn't realize that if you go back quite a few years, it was actually at one point apparently used as a food preservative, but then it stopped because they realized that people were getting headaches and nausea and uh, other side effects, even uh, from consuming the food in those cases. And that's going back to the early 1900s.
2: That's right and you know it's it's very toxic it's a very toxic substance the other thing about social media is people see it you know our attention spans are, are so much more limited these days so they see something quickly people don't bother to look into it i mean you took the time to research it look into it learn about it and you know people don't do that they just think i'm getting on this borax train i'm going to do this challenge uh, for absolutely no benefit um, to anybody. And in fact, it's extremely dangerous. Um, and people need to be cautious and responsible when they're on social media, on either side of social media. And they should critically assess the safety and validity of any trend before participation. And of course, you can always go to your healthcare provider and ask them, is consuming Borax a good idea. Uh,
0: so even as we've been having this discussion, somebody has called in saying, did it not used to be tr- used to treat rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, I will fully admit my research has not gone that far, but it does not sound like Borax is a treatment
2: for health care. No, there's no scientific evidence to support that Borax is used for rheumatoid arthritis, but that is one of the messages that has gotten out uh, widely in, you know, and very broadly on social media.
0: Maureen, it is always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us and hope to talk to you soon. You're so welcome. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for being with us so on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, as you know, there are still several wildfires burning in BC, we heard from Emergency Manager Minister Bowen Ma earlier today saying more than 500 properties remain under evacuation orders, and that's as roughly 360 wildfires are burning in this province. That was part of the minister's comments. Those were made during an update on the state of BC's response to severe wildfire and drought conditions. Well, how do we go about training new firefighters? We have tragically heard heard about the deaths of two firefighters in this province this season and there have been some questions about the training process and how that happens well joining me to talk more about this is mike carter iaff sixth district vice president representing western canada mike thank you so much for being here
4: Thank you very much for having us.
0: Uh, Mark Bryce is also here. Mark is a Kamloops firefighter, also a member of IAFF Local 913. Mark, thanks to you as well for taking the time.
5: Absolutely. Thanks for having us.
0: We wanted to, to talk more with you about this uh, because uh, the IAFF, the International Association of Firefighters, uh, has partnered with Natural Resources Canada as well as the City of Kamloops uh, hosting a training program. This is going to happen next week to better train or to train structural firefighters when we are dealing with wildfires. So I, I'm not sure. Maybe we can start with Mark. Uh, sorry, Mike, if you could start uh, and talk a little bit about the training program and what's going to be taking place.
4: Sure. So we're actually training this week. Right. Um, And what it is, is it's called responding to the interface or RTI. And that's when structural firefighters or community firefighters kind of put a wall of protection between structures and homes and the wildfire that may be impacting their community. So we're working with our structural firefighters and cam loops uh, from firefighters across Western Canada to teach them how to better do that and use the tactics available through the training program from the IFF.
0: And Mark, if I can bring you in on this as well. And can you talk a little bit, uh, or, or whoever wants to jump in on this, but the difference between fighting a wildfire as compared to fighting a, a structure fire and how the training is different and the approach is different? Sure,
5: it's uh, Mark. I'll, I'll take this. Um, when we go to a, a structure fire, like a house fire, we consider that fire, that fire, it's in, a, it's in a box, if you will. Um, and we can roll up to that house we know that's our bread and butter. We can pull our lines, and we're going to try to keep that fire in that box and then put that, put that fire out. When we get these interface fires, there's lots of boxes that we have to protect. Um, the fire is, is mobile. It's, it's doing things that we're not necessarily used to. We may have to protect, like, a whole street or a neighbourhood. So we have to be mobile. We have to think outside the box and learn new tactics on how to um, get our hose on the truck, get our hose off the truck and back on the truck quickly and be mobile. So it's, it's a bit of a different animal that we, that we have to deal with, and that's what this training is, is addressing.
0: And, and I would imagine too that not that there aren't hazards with a structure fire, or like you said, when you know the fire is contained to a box or a particular structure but but different hazards when you're out in a wildfire and and it's it 's burning around or it's moving or the winds pick up or that kind of thing
5: absolutely um, the wind, The winds um, can affect the fire behavior dramatically, they still do when we do um, When we are fighting those house fires, winds do have an effect on that, but greater the magnitude in the wildland-urban interface. And then there's also other things that we need to protect. We need to protect the power lines, the the water pump stations, things like that. So there's just a whole bunch of different things, um, different critical infrastructure that we need to be looking at as well. Um, Yeah, there's a lot to take in, a lot to look after, and that's that's what we're doing this week here in Kamloops.
0: And, and I don't know, Mike, if you want to jump in and talk about this too, but how has training changed and how fire, uh, firefighters are dealing with fires changed when we talk about climate change or we talk about the changing conditions of the forests and those types of challenges?
4: Sure. I, I mean, there's, there's no question that we're seeing increased levels of uh, wildfire activity. I mean, you had a, a briefing earlier today where there was 500 active fires in the province. And then what we want to make sure that this training focuses on when those two environments meet, when the wildfire meets the communities and making sure that our our structural firefighters can work in conjunction with our partners in wildfire and doing the very best we can to protect our communities and uh, ensuring that that training is rolled out as timely as possible and making sure that we're utilizing those tactics and making sure our structural firefighters understand the weather conditions, the topography, um, you know, being mobile, because typically in a house fire, you're relatively stationary. Things like that are all part of this program and making sure that we... uh, do we very best we can do, serve, serve, continue to serve our com- communities to the best of our abilities.
0: And as far as the training that's taking place this week or, or right now in Kamloops, is it is it firefighters then from across the region? We're talking about training, and this is training for people who are already firefighters or for people who are looking at getting into that and becoming firefighters?
4: No, these are experienced uh, firefighters from across Western Canada who are structural firefighters from uh, numerous different communities. We've got uh, firefighters here from Saskatchewan, Alberta, B.C., who are um, all IFF members currently that are experienced, career, um, structural firefighters, and almost all of them have wildland experience in whatever profession or role they had prior to getting on to a career department so they have a very good mix and understanding of both worlds which helps us then deliver this material out to other firefighters on a go-forward basis where they can understand uh, both of those different dynamics
0: I, I would imagine too then having that base and then so taking on that knowledge that they have from being in the field and doing this and then then using this to 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 be better i suppose uh, dealing with again those changes and the new challenges
4: Absolutely. And and the the, the program that's been developed through the IFF, and we've brought in experts from like Cal Fire and Texas and Canada, where they've brought their experience together and helped develop this program to ensure we're on the leading edge of tactics, uh, training methodologies, and uh, things that have worked and shown value where we protected thousands of homes and been effective in the tactics and the the strategies that we're teaching these people here today that we're going to roll out across Canada in the coming years with the support of uh, all levels of government.
0: And Mark, what is that like for you as as a Kamloops firefighter, and again a member of that union local, having this information and making sure that you're on top of th- these skills and and being better prepared, better armed to fight these fires?
5: Well, it's huge for us. Um, I mean, we're not we're not unique in our community, but um, Kamloops itself, uh, we have a huge um, interface in our in our city. So the more training and skills that we have um with our firefighters here um it's going to make our our firefighters safer it's going to make our citizens safer so absolutely like it's such a it's such an honor to um have the first course in canada be offered in in kamloops but as uh, mike said after after we do this course we're we're training 24 more instructors to help roll this out across uh, communities across Western Canada. So that's, it's really exciting to be uh, at the forefront of it.
0: And and I think you touched on this, but one of the, the things, not only getting this information and being better prepared for fighting fires. So the graduates of this program, they're going to be then going on and teaching this to, to others and to other firefighters.
5: Yeah, absolutely. This program is designed. So it's a four day program. The first two days they, uh, they take the actual uh, responding to the interface operations class, and then the last two days of the class, we teach them how to teach it. We give them all the resources that they need so they can go back to their own departments, start training them. Um, as departments, um, IFF or not, uh, request the training, we will come to them and provide uh, the same level of training that we're getting here today for those uh, those communities. <laughs>
0: And Mike, I, I don't know if you're best to answer this as well. And I know that this course is being offered along with the the Government of Canada, Natural Resources Canada, funding this program. Uh, how much is, though, important in that sense in that everybody working together and when we come to, to maintenance of forests, especially those that, that are... are could potentially be interface fires to make sure that we're also addressing that and talking about fuel for fires and making it so the conditions are aren't great for wildfires or so that we don't see them so many of them burning out of control
4: the 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 coordination between all levels of government all stakeholders citizens firefighters communities uh wild um it's paramount to make sure that we uh do the very best we can to help a mitigate uh, fires when they start, prevent those fires from firefighters or fires from occurring, and then when they do occur, minimizing the damage as much as possible. Um, you know, with with the wildland firefighters out there trying to do the better best they can with the resources they have available to them. With 500 fires burning, they they're obviously prioritizing and deciding where and when to send those resources, and uh, we're there to back them up when and where we can. And but having that coordination and that uh, level through preventive preventative. Uh, you know making sure that there's resources available when there is a fire and preventing that damage in the long term is everybody needs to have their hands in that and making sure we 're striving for the very best we can.
0: Well, thanks to both of you so much. I know it 's a very busy week with this taking place, but thanks to both of you so much for being here. Appreciate your time.
5: Thank you for the opportunity. yep, yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you.